Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest this week is Kayla Ray Whitaker. She's the author of The Animators. It's a story where a life-changing friendship collides with all-consuming creative ambition to explosive can't-look-away effects. It's a funny, heartbreaking novel of friendship, art, and trauma. The Animators is about the secrets we keep and the burdens we shed on the road to adulthood. Kayla Ray Whitaker was born and raised in Kentucky. She's a graduate of the University of Kentucky and of NYU's MFA program, which she attended as a Jack Kent Cook graduate scholar. She lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and this is her first novel. And boy, is it a good one. I give you Kayla Ray Whitaker. Kayla Ray Whitaker, welcome and thanks for being my first guest on Give and Take. And you are the author of The Animators, a brand new novel which is getting favorable reviews in little neighborhood papers like the New York Times. Thank you very much. Yes, it's uh, it's been out since it came out January 31st, so it's it's still new. It's an it's a new baby. Uh, my wife joined Book of the Month Club recently. It's, they've got this, you know, they really rebooted that whole corporation. They have this really young CEO, and it's, it's and you were one of the featured books. It's, and uh, she said, "You need to ha- talk to this. You need to talk to this woman." So sorry, yeah, sure. So I started reading the book. I said, I said to her about about fifteen pages in. I said, Lindy, I will read anything you put in my hands. Just tell me, and I will read it based on this novel. And I felt the same way by the end of it or even more strongly. I mean, it's just a great, great novel. And your writing style is you're, you've just your, your prose uh, phrases like Mel looked like a dikey George Burns. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is, I mean, this is great. So it's about, right. I mean, this is uh, about these two young women who find each other in college and are from, kind of you know one's from kentucky one's from florida they've had traumatic childhoods and they kind of become each other's inspiration collaborate collaboration partner and and in some ways like they're solace right i i think so it it is at its heart uh a novel about friendship and and those stories are i think really um it's interesting in this case because it's it's a friendship that um that has a lot of um, a lot of peaks and valleys um, when it's at its best, and and the fact that they're they're also business partners and they're also their artistic partners, which you know for for most artists we were just talking about the fact that you know uh, working in isolation, there's you know this that makes that renders a very um, central part of your life, something that you do um, by yourself, you know something that's oftentimes difficult to share with others, which is why it's such a pleasure as a writer to talk to people who, to, to talk to readers. It, it, that's been something that I feel like, uh, I feel like that's been a real treat for me. It's, it's a real privilege and it's, and it's a, a privilege to be able to talk with you about this. Um, but it, uh, it gives their friendship a certain cast, the fact that they, they make art together, that this is something very central and private that they actually share with one another. So in that way, when their friendship is good, 
it's at its best. And when it's bad, it's really, really bad. It's it's like the the types of fights that Mar- uh, Sharon and Mel have are they're the types of fights that married people have <laughs> because they know each other just that well. And, and the pangs are just that deep, you know. Um, so, yeah, in fact, sometimes their friendship causes intimacy issues for Sharon. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, her one of her love interests in the book, it's like there's this struggle. It's it's like it feels like a polyamorous kind of relationship emotionally. <laughs> yes, it is. Mel's competition. She's the one to beat if you want to if you want to get in good with Sharon, you know. Um, do you have do you have siblings? I do. Yeah, um, I have a, a brother who's a couple of years older than than I am. Um, we're pretty close, and I've got some half siblings who are much older than I am. Uh, this is why I asked my wife when I when I was reading. I said, I, I wonder if she's an only child because I, I grew up. I'm adopted. And I grew up as an only child, oh. and somebody once said to me, a friend's wife said, only children are very special because they're so intense about friendships. And you write so well about friendships. I like. I said, she, she must be an only child. And then my my wife, who comes from a family of five siblings, she's like, "No, listen, to, read the stuff she writes about siblings." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm I'm actually I'm the very youngest. Yeah, I'm I'm the youngest person in in my family. So I was I was the last kid to be born. Um, so, but it's it's funny because I've I've got. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who were only children, and my, my husband and I are starting to, to talk about, you know, starting a family. Um, and we, we've we decided that, um, you know, and, and it's, boy, howdy, if we end up having more than one kid, this just occurred to me. <laughs> Those multiple kids hear this podcast, they're going to go, oh, mom. <laughs> um, but we've, we've been talking about just having the one like one and done. So that's actually heartening for me to, to hear that. Um, well, if you have one, li- if you have one like me, stop. Trust me. I mean, <laughs> no, you had a pretty traumatic childhood, right? I mean, did I, Oh gosh, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, in, 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 in some ways maybe. Um, so I've, I've definitely heard of, of childhoods that were more traumatic, but, um, I, I do know that, um, you know, I was pretty lonely as a kid. I didn't have a lot of friends, so there were some social issues there. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm from the South. I grew up in the Bible Belt. So there are definitely, um, I have some issues with my gender, I think, mm-hmm. that um, that relate directly to having been raised in that time and place, though I think Many women, regardless of where they're from, anywhere in the world, have issues with their gender, um, and probably for reasons that are very uh, similar to mine. But gender conditioning in the Bible Belt is—it's—it's um, it's a specific beast, and I think a lot of those issues came out in this book. I think it was after mm. writing this book, and it's funny because I'm—I'm I'm 33. Um, but I, I think just the past couple of years, I've begun to realize how angry I am mm. <laughs> about having been raised female. Um, and I, I mean, I, I am female, but that particular kind of conditioning and, um, you know, some of the experiences I had when I was a woman um, or when I was growing up as as a girl, you know, there's... Um, not many of those gendered experiences for me were good. Mm. Um, 
And well, you gotta feel you gotta feel like things are looking up, and with the Trump administration, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, yeah, you know that's that's been one of the really interesting developments of of I think just the past few months, um, and and I, I wonder if. I wonder if we'd be having this conversation if the election had turned out differently. But I, I think mm. one of the, mm. I think for a lot of a lot of boys and girls who were raised in the eighties and in the nineties, kind of at the, the very, um, oh gosh, I, I guess that was probably where second wave feminism kind of tapered off. Um, I think we were raised on this narrative of of continued progression. Everything, mm-hmm. everything is is just getting better and better, you know. And 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 by the time we're adults, you know, there will be no more pay gap. You know, there there will be no more glass ceiling. Will we will have arrived at our destination? And that is not at all true. I, I think that we're we're beginning to realize that um, that it wasn't a myth so much as a miscalculation. Yeah, yeah, and I th- I just heard a study. It said like thirty three or thirty five percent of millennials don't think it's it's necessary to live in a liberal democracy. And it's like you know, it's like the whole thing, like the Iron Curtain. Yeah, I remember I was teaching an undergrad class, and I asked them. Uh, we were talking about hermeneutics interpretation. I said, let me see, ask you if you see a picture of a bear boxing an e- a bald eagle, what's it mean? None of them knew. Oh, so like, so like here, I mean, and it's just and you can't blame. I mean that that whole. So the whole things with Russia and everything—it's just, mm-hmm. th- you know, with, with taking uh, equality things for 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 granted. Yeah, things aren't don't inevitably get better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, boy, that's that's really that's that's interesting and and unnerving in in a very real way. Um, what, what has been, I think, for me, really um, really heartening and a, a big reason for hope. Um, I think is is the emergence of this very young protest culture, um, and the fact that we're we're talking of things about things as as far as you know gender issues are concerned. We're talking about we're talking about microaggressions, and we're talking about implicit bias, and we're talking about emotional caretaking, and and these are these are issues that are that are on the table, and and they're they're made very explicit now, and that's a really wonderful thing because. 20 years ago, you know, anybody who would have raised these issues and tried to elicit examples, you know, they they would have been completely shot down. Um, Do you think there's like a tension with a pendulum swing? There's like been some articles written recently about sort of these young, angry conservatives. And as I was thinking about this, mm-hmm. I was thinking about these articles reading your book because because Sharon and Mel, they, bo- they both come from. Uh, not elite cultural locations and feel and know it right away when they go to college in New York. Like, and p- it's part of their bond, right? That, that they, they're not um, Northeastern elites or, or blue state coastal elites. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's like this balance. I don't know if a balance, but the tension of, you know, because these articles are saying that if you're a Midwestern kids, traditional religious upbringing, conservative values, that you're kind of, the microaggression stuff sometimes becomes censorious, mm-hmm. with, which then makes them more angry, and right. so you get you get you get a more you get an even more angry conservative backlash. I, I wonder how you hold all that intention. Oh wow, it's it's something that um, it's it's hard to decode, right? It, it, it's it's hard to kind of see where the where the aggression really begins. I, I think you're really right that there's there's been probably a, a serious backlash. 
Um, but, you know, a discussion about microaggressions, you know, um, it, it was it was something that needed to that's a discussion that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it almost makes me wonder if we are, if we're not using the right language to to talk about these issues, if we need to locate a, a language that is that is more inclusive, that wouldn't isolate people. Yeah, I think yeah. that the the real root of that anger is is isolation that people feel. Um, it's you know hearing the term microaggressions and maybe not quite understanding um, what what that means. Um, and that's yeah, yeah yeah. And it's 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 all about it's all about the words that you use. It's all about having this kind of common plane of understanding. And I think that gap is. That gap became very, very scary right around the time of the election. And and all I yeah. remember is, is did you on, on election night, did you hear Glenn Beck actually talking? I think he was on NBC um, and he he actually made a lot of sense. And it's like, wow, Glenn Beck is the sanest voice on election night 2016. <laughs> he said, we don't understand each other. There's yes. there's a very yes. big gap in this country and we don't understand each other and it's heartbreaking and it is frightening because it, the the repercussions are, you know, they're becoming really violent and really real. And and that's something that, you know, that that made a lot of sense. I never thought I would find myself agreeing with Glenn Beck, but there <laughs> but there it is. You Glenn know? Beck was a morning zookeeper uh, at WMMR or some station. It's so funny because like Rush Limbaugh was a bad top 40 DJ. Like he was horrible in Pittsburgh. Yes. And Glenn Beck was, a zookeeper. and now these guys are intellectual thought leaders. So if you don't make it the zookeeper a bad top 40, go and just tell people how they should view reality. But yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm I believe Glenn Beck was actually in Louisville, which is where I live now. Um, so it, I think for a while he was stationed in Louisville, which I thought was very interesting, you know. And I'm one of the only people, I think, in Metro Philadelphia that says Louisville. Good for you. I love it. Hey. Good for you. <laughs> Great. You know, what's interesting, a lot of reviewers have said that your book is very timely because of some of these issues. And as I was grappling that because I thought, yes, it, it is. But yet also the way you deal with issues of gender and isolation and sexuality and the sort of culture, you know, like, you know, you can tell bad art when it shouts at you. Hey, think this way. It's what I like about your novel is it's so descriptive and not prescriptive. And, and, and the, so I, I, I felt like it's just a real invitation to deep human understanding. And I found myself, um, it's funny, my question about your childhood, I probably make the, uh, non novel writer thinking mistake that, oh, well, these characters must be a composite of her. And she writes so convincingly about their pain that that's got to be in her somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's a weird thing, um, being, uh, being a writer of fiction, because if if I said this in any other forum, it would just sound like uh, I had a personality disorder. Um, sort of that your your job as being um, as being sort of a vessel for these other people, um, which is kind of what I I aim for. You know these different characters that that live in in my head. Um, there there is. There, there is some overlap between Sharon and I, at least on the the outside. We're both, you know, we're both uh, white women shuttling towards middle age. We're both from the Bible Belt. We both have an artistic bent. We both left the rural South for another, some would say, you know, more politically progressive part of the U.S. 
Um, so there, there is some overlap, but, um, but, but Sharon is, is definitely, she is very distinct from me. Um, yeah. So, and, and I, I say that gratefully because Sharon being inside her head is I think very tough. Um, and, uh, and the same goes for, for Mel. Mel's a, a lot of fun. And, um, back, back in my drinking days, I probably, I exhibited some Mel like behavior, but, but she's, she's very distinct from me as, as well. And it's, and in the context of the book saying that is fine. But if you said that, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of my day like other, you know, thinking, um, um, as somebody else, um, people would say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> is, there a de- is there a detox period for a book like this that, again, some of the dark, traumatic stuff and, and the pain of the relationships, like being in their heads and in that story, mm-hmm. do you have to like, do you, is there like, okay, I, see, I mean, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, after he wrote the Screwtape Letters, which is le- letters, fictional letters from a senior demon to his, his nephew who's, <laughs> and, and how to ruin this guy in England's life. And he's just like, I was so dark after I wrote that. I went through a period because I was, I was literally trying to think how a demon would think about destroying someone's life. And so, like, I mean, I mean, is there something like that? Like, okay, I got to watch some Disney films or something. Like a little, a little bit, yeah. Um, are you a Calvin and Hobbes fan, by the way? On and off, yeah, yeah on and off. Yeah, I loved. I always loved the fact that, um, and and I've and you know, full admission, I've I've never read the Screw Tape Leathers. It's been on my to read list for years and years. Um, so I need to get on that. But Mrs. Wormwood, Calvin's teacher, um, I believe. Her name was actually derived from the screw tape letters. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. It was great. Um, that is a, that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely a detox period. There, there are portions of this book that were, um, you know, that, that detail, um, that, that detail uh, abuse in, in some ways. Um, and we, you know, in Sharon, we have this character who has, you know, there, there are things that have happened to her that she's completely buried which and and scarily, you know, that is a common experience. It is more common, I think, than people would realize. Um, I yeah, I, I remember the summer after I spent um, I spent a lot of my time drafting that material and, and forming it in a way that it um, in in, in a, a definitive way, so that most of what you see in the book, I drafted it that summer. Um, this really miserable summer in in New York, you know. I remember finishing up and and just I was I was incredibly depressed after. And it was probably the the season after writing those sections after you know writing that part of the book. I actually went on medication for the mm. first time in my life. Mm. Um, you know, I, I finally you know I, I went to a therapist. I went to a psychiatrist, and it was kind of like oh okay. So I. You know, I have clinical depression. I have clinical depression. It may or may not relate to the experience of writing that book, mm. but it's pretty hard to separate in my mind. So, so yeah, that that experience was. Um, mm. It was interesting to live that live that part of my uh, fiction in a way so intensely. The fact that my fiction. I feel I, f- I feel not guilty that I've my literary pleasure has come at your cause of your pain. No, I mean, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's, I'm so sorry no. that that oh, no. was the aftermath. Oh no, that's okay. It was it was it was my choice, and it's it's definitely um, it's not um, my my. I think my experience is not an uncommon one. It is not an uncommon one, um, and so being able to speak with others about that and to to relate with other people about 
living that life, living that life in that sort of unspeakable part of your brain. Um, I'm so happy when I'm, I'm able to connect with others, if, if only for a moment, um, hmm. about that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because you write about this, these two professional animators and you don't draw. No, I wish I did. And uh, Lord knows I tried. I really did. I'm a huge, I'm a huge cartoon fan. I'm a huge animation fan. Um, and I think I wrote this uh, in large part because I can't draw. It was hmm. the closest I could come to living this life and to vicariously having this experience of, of making this piece of art was to write about it, essentially. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Do you think... Um, I, I, I've re- I read somewhere recently that somebody was making a case, the case for... They were talking about just the importance of liberal arts in general. And I wonder, is there a case to be made for, like, for art being more a part of, you know, the lettered life or the, I mean, it, it just, I know some creatives, you know, who, who find that they can sketch and even though that that's not their medium, maybe they're a writer. Like they did the strain, um, I, I same it's a vampire kind of serial drama and, uh, FX, I think, but he's a very good artist and he's a writer, but you know, he's beginning to sketch out these vampires and things he found really, I mean, do, do you think like people, if people could draw, even though that that wasn't their primary medium, it would enhance them as artists? Maybe so. You know, I I think that it um, trying to cross disciplines in a way does open up sections of your brain that you maybe didn't know existed. Um, And I I think that um, when when you do something like write or or if you do something like draw and you sit down every day and it's it's your job, it's your primary means of of expressing yourself. Um, going through those same motions every day, it, uh, it can kind of, um, it can become repetitive. It can shut off certain, certain trains of thought that, uh, that might pass you by if you're bogged down in repetition in a way. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I was saying to you before, like that, before we started recording that, you know, you, sh- I was trying to find some interviews with you to get a sense for you. And I love, I've only find a couple and you're great in them. And uh, you write you write about uh, these characters' success and them going on interviews, uh, on the interviews in NPR. And like one chapter, I think it's called What We Did to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, so so one of my first experiences, actually, the day my book came out, I was I was in New York. Um, I, and I, I used to live in Brooklyn and, um, and I went up there just to, to do like a reading and kind of for the opening. And, and I, I went with my publicist to, um, to Sirius XM and I did a, a recording with, uh, I think it was with entertainment weekly. And, and I, I, you know, when I, I, I saw her, I said, I promise I won't, I won't destroy any of the equipment. I won't, <laughs> I won't. I won't misbehave like Mel because that's that's a that's a pretty bloody scene. Yeah, so uh, it's amazing. <laughs> and the way you narrate, you know, what I, the part of the beauty of that chapter is you're like there's this codependent management Sharon is doing with Mel, and she's in her head. She's like, oh, I don't do it. Redirect. Like you, like mm-hmm. you, you. Sharon knows the meltdown is coming. She can see it spiraling out of control. It's like, it's like when you when the glass is falling off the ledge and. You, you, you can move sort of, but you know you won't catch it. I mean, it's so like I read that going, oh, I'm like wincing because I'm caught up in the tension. <laughs> I know it's 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 horrible for it's horrible for everybody, but Mel. Mel has a really good time. 
you know. <laughs> but um, that's that's one of the things that I really I think is really interesting about Mel. Um, it, it, it's almost as if every not her every social interaction, but a lot of her social interactions, particularly when she feels nervous, um, it it feels like a social experiment. It's almost as if she has to test the people around her in order to gauge whether or not they're they're open to gauge whether or not they're I think she's kind of trying to measure the judgment levels of of others in a way and to yeah, sort like of her, mm-hmm. her 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 challenge is like like please for intimacy almost like okay I'm intense I've got this kind of challenging almost adversarial personality but that's my way of connecting so i need to push and see if you'll push back because that's my form of connection and if you if you wince or if you get quiet then i then i'm you're not safe for me right right and it's it's really it's it's equal parts uh it's bravado and and in, in a real way it's vulnerability but it's vulnerability that is very loud and his vulnerability that's that's funny and extroverted and on occasion obnoxious. And you know, I, I really I enjoy it and I find it interesting when when people display sensitivity and vulnerability um, and even kindness in ways that are unexpected mm-hmm. and in ways that are deeply, deeply confusing in a way. And that's that's one of the reasons why I think I had such a deep affection for for Mel. It's almost as if these these signals are just incredibly, incredibly mixed. Um, so writing about her was uh, in equal parts a, a challenge and, and a joy. Um, and you also you don't that's it's Mel is um, I wonder what it's like to be that brave <laughs> and to be that uh, lacking and self-conscious. Uh, self-consciousness rather I, i've i've never felt that way i don't know a whole lot of women who have honestly but boy howdy mel does not care she does <laughs> on- is there like an alter ego there for you i mean is this like hey like like who would i man if i with with less conventions less boundaries less you know i saw oh, i think is post why post-apocalyptic stuff is such a popular genre right like it's it's not the it's not the event it's do people completely change when the constraints are pulled away or the things, you know, like in The Walking Dead or something? Is that, is there some aspect for, for Mel for you? Is like, what, is, is it that kind of thing? I, I think so, in a way. I, I think a lot of the times when I write Mel and, and knowing that for a lot of readers, Mel's a lot. Mel, Mel could actually be, she's, she's as much of a burden as she is a joy. For a lot of readers, they don't quite know how to take her. But for me, yes, in a lot of ways, I, I wrote I wrote Mel and I wrote Sharon too because some of their features are features that I would like to have. Some of those qualities and certainly their their bravery. They're they're pretty brave characters. And what in Sharon? What 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 in Sharon do you, do you kind of long for in yourself? Oh boy, you know, I think at the end of the day, her she displayed her sense of bravery when she when she made a piece of art that everybody around her hated um and when she um not to not to give a spoiler um but one of the one of the pivotal points of the of the book as you know is uh when Sharon makes uh she makes a movie that uh, is based on um an event that happened to her when she was a child and um the movie um, directly involves um, 
a friend of hers from childhood who objects, of course, when he sees his his sort of likeness in this in this piece of art. Um, and so he call he calls them thieves, right? He says, Matt Melanchant, you guys are thieves. He calls what you are. <laughs> he calls them thieves. And I think for for a pretty big portion of the book, and that's and that's a very complicated subject, you know, writing about your your life and maybe you know replicating the lives of others and that. And it's and it's not that's not the kind of fiction I write, of course. Um, but it's it's a really it's an interesting genre that sort of fiction slash memoir. You know what happens when it's not just you and when it's others. Um, I think for a a large portion of the first part of the book, we we see Sharon really struggling. I don't want to use the word spineless, but there's <laughs> she um, she she struggles to stand up for herself. She struggles to not be passive. She is. I, I think, and, and this is maybe one of my big connectors to to Sharon. We were both raised explicitly female, and I think she finds herself chafing at those constraints. You know, the 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 sort of um, the 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 value of silence. I think in a woman as it was taught to Sharon. Uh, you know, I, I think that that touches her life for the worse. It makes her life worse. Um, it makes her sense of herself a lot cloudier and a lot weaker. Um, but that was the first point in the book at which she really stands up for herself and for her work. And she says, you know what? No, this is this is my story. You know, this is this thing is mine. Um, and it's it's a powerful and divisive kind of kind of moment. But I think it was it was defining for Sharon. Um, yeah. If Mel's the brave one, is Sharon the resilient one? I mean, like she's I mean, Sharon struck me as just. She, what she, she lacked in bravado, like she was so resilient, though, and, mm-hmm. and can come back and and through th- situations that are, and she's not, she's living a rough lifestyle too, not quite as rough as Mel, but but uh, you know, uh, it she doesn't break quite as easily. She really doesn't. No, Sharon's built for the long haul. She really <laughs> is, um, and she doesn't think she is, but she is in a in a very real way. I um. I ended up being really proud of Sharon, honestly, and and I, I think that that's that's one of the best ways you can feel about um, about one of your characters is is to feel pride and in their sense of growth. Yeah, by the end, I I came away feeling hopeful for people who have had traumatic, especially early developmental tra- traumatic experiences, which are many. Um, that, that that she is resilient. I mean, there, there's this, and you know, the 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 book ends. Um, it, it it's not uh, it's not like a Hollywood happy ending, but it, it it there's a there's a dark beauty to it. I mean, there's kind of it's very uh, it's funny. My one of my advisors in grad school, he grew up in Hollywood and then did all of his advanced work in Germany. When they met him, they said, "Oh, you're from Hollywood. Das happy ending." <laughs> <laughs> So this is not a Hollywood ending, um, but it's beautiful. I mean, it, it, I came away with real hope for Sharon that there, that some that that she had. I mean, uh, it's it's a challenge becoming an adult, uh, you know, because we we all have childhood wounds, and, and it's it, you know everybody has screwed up parents to some degree, some more extreme than others. And I think so many people, especially because we have college is delayed and delayed adolescence, and you, you know, am I adult yet? I'm 28 or sorry, 32. You know, like, and so she gives. Me hope for authentic adulting. Me too. 
me too in in a way that's very real and and i think one of the one of the big parts of of becoming an adult and becoming an adult in in the way that sharon does with at least some grasp on on hope for the future is the ability to kind of take a long look down the hopefully the years that lay ahead of you and and to say with with resolve and with meaning I'm I'm going to try my best. I I am going to commit myself to to making a life that's that's meaningful and that is, you know, uh fulfilling for me and um, you know, fulfilling for for those I care about and I'm going to I'm going to commit myself in in this very real way to to making my life everything that it that it can be. I'm going to do everything in my power and I think that's that's the definition of hope in a way that's there's there there is a sense of renewal there because in her it's funny during her adolescence and in her 20s i'm pretty sure sharon didn't feel that way mm-hmm. i think her her outlook was something that actually it improved after the fact of adversity um do you do you have do you have many friends i mean are you someone that has close adult friendships i do i'm very very lucky you know i i have I have a lot of friends as an adult. I have I have meaningful friendships, like friendships that I've maintained for 15 years. I mean, since college and just really, yeah, that's that's one of my life's joys in a big way. And I didn't have that when I was a kid. When I was younger, I was very lonely, you know, and, and I, you know, I have some some friends and some well-wishers from from where I grew up. But I. I think that's one of the big differences between my my youth and my adulthood. In my youth, I felt extremely lonely. In my adulthood, I am not. Why? What changed? I don't know. I don't know if it's me or if it's <laughs> it. It may have been me in in a way. Um, it may have been me coming into a certain kind of comfort as as an adult. Um, I think I was I was kind of I was the the weird kid. Where I grew up, I grew up mm. in a, a town that was pretty small and pretty rural. And I was, um, I was, I was very heavy and nerdy, and and I knew. I think almost from the very beginning, it's like I, I feel like I don't belong here. Um, and um, but the upside to that is, I wished that I did. I I really wished I had. Um, you know, I I wanted, I wanted kinship desperately i think when i was younger um i don't know i I think maybe that that certain kind of that loneliness from the very beginning i think most most people you find who you know have substance abuse issues like that's their very beginning that's their beginning narrative you know is you know this feeling of loneliness and needing something in your you know to to keep you company in your head um i'm not sure what the difference is I'm, i'm not sure what happened but whatever happened I'm I'm really glad that it did because those relationships for me are you know it's that's what makes life worth living. How long how, how long have you been in recovery? Uh, I got sober when I was 21. I messed up early. <laughs> you know, it's probably probably saved my life. Um, so it's been oh boy, uh, just over 11 years, uh, 12 years and. In May, God willing. Were you writing 
before you were sober? I mean, you were pretty young. I mean, mm-hmm. did you, were you a creative then? Would you would you self identified that way? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, and when I was a <laughs> when I was younger, I wanted to be a poet, and um, I am not. Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't have whatever it is. I always say I would be a rock star if I only had talent. <laughs> <laughs> like if I could sing it or play an instrument or or both, I think I'd be a good rock star. But man, me me too. That would just be that would be fun. I would I would like to be David Lee Roth. Um, <laughs> yeah, he just seems like he's having a lot of fun. Uh, I heard Billy Idol and Howard Stern. He said, "How'd you get into music?" Well, he said, yeah, "I'm like 14, and yeah, I'm having sex too early, and these other friends get me into drugs." He's like, "Wait." You're 14, you're getting sex strikes. That's why people become rock stars. Like, <laughs> I'm surprised you were motivated. <laughs> I know. What did he get out of it if, if not that? Wow. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's really funny. This is your first novel. This is my first novel. It's actually not the first that I've written. Um, I have uh, another novel that's sleeping in a desk drawer. Um, and it was, it was actually my thesis from NYU. Uh, so the the first the first novel you publish is not always the it's not always the first one you write. Yeah. <laughs> now, like you've gotten, I mean, I've only read a few reviews, but the few reviews I've read were in pretty big publications like the Guardian, New York Times, and they were very complimentary. I mean, were you worried about that? Or, 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 or do you think like, or do you have do you have a sense like, man, all right, not everything I've written may be the best in the world, but this is it. I mean, this is it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I wish I hadn't been worried about it, but, but I was, I I think every writer is, there's something about just sales and and reviews. I mean, it's, you know, you're kind of, kind of pushed into that world and, and that's, yeah, I was, I was definitely concerned about it. Um, So it's, um, I wish I could say, I didn't care, but of course I cared, you know, in a very real way, but um, we had a there was a good uh, review in Kirkus, I think. And Kirkus is, you know, it's it's an industry publication. And so, you know, it's something that, you know, like getting a good review in Publishers Weekly. It's something that, you know, writers kind of, you know, you, you, you get beads of sweat on your forehead kind of waiting for this particular review. And and it was good, um, but it was something um Somebody, somebody on my team said this. They said, "Oh, it's great. They got it." And it was, it was. It took me a moment to just kind of remember. Oh, yeah, that's that's all that it is. That's what a review is. They either you know get a book or they don't. It doesn't mean that it's good or bad. It doesn't mean that the seven years that you put into this project is you know was a waste or not. You know, it doesn't matter. It's just does the person get it or not. Um, that's been something that's really healthy, I think, for me to remember during this process. What do you think the function of criticism is in our society? Like, what is, I mean, in, you know, in literature and maybe, you know, in film, I mean, like, I mean, it's interesting because you're, as, as a novelist, I mean, you must, you probably read a lot of critical reviews and you probably think a lot about the nature of the critic. I do. Um, you know, I think at its best, Criticism is kind of the it's it's a way to have a dialogue with with readers that goes beyond um, beyond just whether or not the book was good or bad, but goes deeper into, you know, the book's 
cultural relevance in a way and, you know, how it relates to the times and kind of what it says about us as as people, not as not as just readers, but as as people, you know, embarking on our lives. You know, what do we find meaningful? What do we not find meaningful? And that's that I think is it's inclusive as exposed to exclusive. You know, it's it's sort of being pushed into a larger world of of ideas. And I think the um, the New York Times book review, they do a great job of this. You know, um, sometimes the, the, the reviews are like sitting down and reading that Sunday supplement is something I look forward to all week. You know, I, I think a, a lot of the reviews in, in there, they, they do an excellent job of this. Um, yeah, A.O. A- a- Scott from the New York Times wrote like, a really good book about criticism last year. And he kind of says that that criticism is part of, you know, that, that tr- truth, the true, the good, the beautiful. There's this weird objective versus subjective pol- polarity, you know, like, mm-hmm. and he's like, it's almost like criticism c- tries to push us to the ob- a shared objective view of what the true, the good and the beautiful are, even right. though it will always be subjective. But like mm-hmm. good criticism helps us see what's there and what's not or, you know, what what. You know, as we do that, you know, collectively, because we experience art together. I mean, it's a shared, any kind of art form, right? It's a shared uh, social phenomenon. I mean, it means something because you can talk about it, think about it with others. Right, right. Yeah. And it's kind of the, I guess that's the higher objective for for criticism and i've been meaning to pick that book up by the way so i'm gonna take that as it's a, it's excellent yeah. it is an excellent book okay. and the way it starts off is so he talks about how basically his review of the avengers uh, uh, it was sort of samuel l jackson was like <laughs> tweeting expletives and this guy shouldn't have a job and then he's like but it actually held up what i said was you know it, it just it's just kind of, it, it, it's not so it kind of it, it's very it's a great book i could i couldn't say enough good about it nice yeah okay i'm gonna check it out um, hey, would you really want to read something from your novel? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I've got my beat-up work copy of the animator sitting right next to me. I love it. Um, do you have any requests? Any? You know, I, I thought about this mm-hmm. a lot, and I I like the book so much. I, I like. I, I, no, I don't want to make requests because I don't want to pick something that's a spoiler, <laughs> and I don't want to pick between my favorites. Okay. Um. So, how about when Sharon? pulls out the list for the first time what do you think would that be i love it i love it okay i love it great so um let's see i guess a, a little bit of background um on this so um the the main character sharon in the animators um she maintains um an obsessive list of every man she's ever been in love with um, and she keeps it in a moleskin, and it it is illustrated. It is it is illustrated. It is annotated. It is it is very thorough, and um, and it's a, a big part of her her mental mental landscape in a way. So um, so yeah, this is um, this scene takes place uh, during a party. Uh, Sharon has. Um, Sharon has just uh, run into. Um, she's just seen an ex-boyfriend actually with with somebody else, and it's um, and it's it's hit her hard. And uh, and Mel's just um, broken her iPhone because she was acting like a jackass. Uh, so that's, <laughs> she does. She breaks. She does those kind of things a lot. <laughs> she breaks stuff. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll start there. Here's the hard truth: If you're a woman, being an artist, even a good one, doesn't get you dick. Your stock may rise, but there is no corresponding spike in tail. 
other than the lesbian contingency, of course, we're all screwed. On the world will spin while every hair on my snatch goes gray as a mule. I know what I'm up against here. I'm dumpy. A guy like Beardsley, well-bred and moneyed, with a wardrobe frayed in all the right places, was always out of my league, even in spite of his wannabe artist status. A year at Brown, a transfer to RISD, glowing credentials, but no finished products to call his own. Nothing with the flight or abandon of what we do. Mel flicks at her phone, sighs. This thing is shot, but she springs her knife open to the screwdriver hidden in the side, replaces her glasses. At least tell me this, what is it about him in particular that's getting to you? More truth, I have an infatuation problem. It's not just Beardsley, it's all of them. I've felt this for a hundred other men. The rush of the encounter, the way my stomach heats and bubbles, the adrenaline, the urge to run five miles and move my bowels and puke at the same time. It's a frenzy for the story and what it could be. The ability to escape from my life, the chance at a grand renovation of self within another person. It's the sense of possibility, so good it feels like it will salvage everything. How hard it is to beat the dream. How it traps you. It's embarrassing. It's lonely. It's unsatisfying. It's impossible. At day's end, I just want a life where I'm laughing and eating and coming all the time. I could do this for the rest of my life, this rise and fall, defined increasingly by what I cannot have. If I told Mel all this, she'd understand. She gets the chase, but she lives it in front of the drafting board. The prey is the idea. I feel it, too, when we're working long hours, hot on the trail. But the work alone has never felt like enough for me. There's a knock at the door. Surly Kathy pokes her head in, smirks at Mel. Baby breaker phone. I'm a fan of that mustache you're growing, Mel tells her. It's a real vag grabber. That guy from Time Out in New York is here. Maybe you guys should go talk to him before you're too sloppy to put a sentence together. When Kathy sees me sniffling, she makes her face go blank and drops her eyes. Mel stands and stretches, tossing her iPhone onto the table. Thanks, hun, turns to me. I got this. Have a smoke. Calm down. Come back out and we'll make fart by his tacos from the truck. Mel closes the door behind her. The room is quiet. The only sound, the thumping of the stereo system rattling the metal door in its frame. When I'm sure I'm alone, I heft the shoulder bag from the floor and sift through until I reach the bottom where I know it will be. A beat to hell, unruled, eight and a half by eleven moleskin sketcher's diary. The first I ever bought, now held together by a fraying goody hairband. I put my head down and listen for a moment to make sure Mel's not coming back before I open it. I need to see the list. I call it the list, though it is in form and function no list. It is not itemized. It's barely chronological. It is a junk drawer, my offal pile, my brain-gnawing archipelago of fuckery, my greatest ongoing work to be completed never. The list is a secret compendium of every man with whom I have ever fallen in love. It began as a comfort project in the wake of the great Zach from Kansas rejection of December 2001, a dismissal that bit because it unfolded in exactly the manner I had expected it to. He was spotted, unawares, making out with the hallmark blonde at a party. I ran off, thus beginning a long and distinguished history of scuttling away crying. The idea was born of a combination of grief and the brand new sense of enterprise that being in college, Mel Colla Mel's collaborator, and newly committed to being an artist had given me. 
I decided I would draw him out of my head and make it so good I would be done with him. Rubens' primary medium was not oils, but women, the pale, peaked bodies of well-fed girls. My medium is dick. The men are the impetus. From the fifth grade, when I was in love with Teddy Cottle, the list's patron saint, to the present. Every floundered crush and ill-advised infatuation is documented. In the hot, rock-hard rejection ever present from age 13 on, my love life, as it is, largely a spectator sport. Once I drew one, I had to draw them all. I did the same for the next guy and the next and all the ones who came before. The list deepened, became richer and more feted. Like the best project, it grew its own horrible legs. The man is always in the middle, captured in realistic strokes. Mel once told me my style reminded her of R. Crumb, his ability to sketch accurate form and feature and proportion, yet maintain a few merry cartoon elements. Thick, goony smiles, a bulbous nose. I've paid good-natured attention to sneaker toes, gummy iPhone cases, the horned edges of boutique specs. Some smiles, others slump, a few glance off the page accusingly as if aware they've been pinned for observation. Stats dance along the edge, ACT scores, favorite books, shoe size, names of exes, breakup method. Jack is at a Coney Island shooting gallery, gaping, surrounded by snarling, stuffed chimps and bears. Pavel splays in the booth of a midtown coffee shop, leg bent, knee cocked up. His hamburger opens up on his plate, teeth visible, readying to bite him. Stephen stands in front of a crumbling factory in Bushwick, the windows of which are screaming. But about ten pages in, the list becomes something else, veers into even darker, more alien territory. Unseemly things appear, a knife in a bed of flowers, the tip of a rifle emerging from a page's edge. One begins to see things they immediately wish they hadn't, the snuff film you should not have watched by yourself. Next to number 58, a long, dark oak chest, the shadow of which stretches over half the page, a snake dripping out over one side. Above number 69, a lock set into wood stares out, an eye with no pupil. Around number five, a series of tiny hands on each, a solitary finger broken. Number 87, lost in a forest in which each tree is the torso of a woman growing from a stump. This is what I am compelled to draw. The things that come to me out of the dimness, what I see on the inside of my eyelids after pressing them with my hands, my automatic writing. The list is a thing. I make for no one in a place no one can see a dark, constant discovery. Even on days when I can barely stand to look at it, it is one of the few things in my life that enthrall me. Oh, that is so beautiful. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. For doing that. <laughs> you know, as it, as I was reading your book, I, I came back to this quote again and again in my head by this Christian psychiatrist, Frank Lake. We, it was really popular like in the 60s. I think he died in 1980. But he says in the beginning of his sort of thousand-page book on psychiatry, um, he says, when we, when we regard our humanity as a container, uh, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. And that, that's one of the as I read, especially Sharon, um, you like the bottom getting knocked out of your humanity again and again makes it 
it ruins as a bucket when you think, okay, you know, I want to be this kind of perfect, a perfectly understood artist or lover or, but she allows it to be a vessel. Like she allows the bottom getting like to have life flow through her, her and out of her. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's part of what gave me hope at the end of the book. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Your writing is really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I love that idea though, because it kind of negates, it negates the, the idea of emptiness you know, mm-hmm. instead of emptiness, there's sort of this, oh, I was just reading something about, you know, I was I was reading The Argonauts. I don't know. If, have you ever read The Argonauts? It's it's gorgeous. It's by. No, I don't think so. Uh, it's by Maggie Nelson, who's a you know philosopher and a critic. And it's but it's it's partially a, a memoir um, as well, sort of an investigation of gender and family and motherhood. Um, it's a great book. And it's a, a really it's a a fast read, uh, but she's talking about um, the first time she ever saw Anne Carson, the poet, speak, oh. and she talked about um, sort of leaving leaving room in your work for God, almost like when you plant a, a bonsai tree slightly off off center to to make room for the divine. In a way, that's that's something that. Um, it gives me a lot of hope when I think about that. And when I was rereading the Argonauts this this time, I sort of I circled that and I put a star next to it. I just just thought, you know, this is, you know, that's that is the opposite of of emptiness is that sense of of openness in a way. And that's yeah. There's that line in is it Hemingway's in Farewell to Arms where he says, mm-hmm. that, you know, life breaks everyone, but afterwards, some are stronger in the broken places. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's. That's something that that is hopeful. It is it is hopeful in a way. And, you know, there there are dark points in, in this book. But, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, it's been almost, oh, gosh, a year since I touched it, you know, a year since the edits, you know, were over and, and done with. And I, I am left with a sense of hope um, more than with the memory of the, the dark spots. I'm, I'm not left with the oil stains. I'm, I'm left with. I'm left with Sharon in that last chapter, and I, I hope I hope readers will be too. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me talking, and for everybody once again, get run, don't walk to the bookstore or to your keyboard on Amazon. I guess how most people buy books, but get the Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. Please do check out The Animators. It's a great book. Until next time, fare thee well.